I'll actually start with prayer as we begin our sixth lesson. I can't believe we're halfway there already. Halfway there already. Okay. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name, and Lord, we are so thankful for this evening and this chance once again to get together to study your word with like-minded believers. Father, I pray that as we go through the verses tonight, that you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, we know that your word is alive, it is active in our lives, and it is always applicable. So God, even as we read and we touch on history and we see things in the Old Testament and the New Testament, Lord, we are always, um, we are always looking and always open to what you have for us in our personal life as well. And Father, we thank you that your word is a mirror that your word reveals things to us about us. So we just say tonight that we are open, Lord, to learning. We want to be teachable, Father. We want to, um, we want to dive deep into your word. And Lord, I think that just the evidence of looking into a letter like Jude and the people who are coming, Lord, it just shows that we want to understand the parts of the word that maybe are harder to understand. So, Father, we just ask for your help this evening in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so Kelly is going to read the letter for us tonight. If you want to come up. And again, you're welcome to follow along. Okay, this is out of the ESV. So Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother to James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were, de were designated for this condemnation, condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a, blasph a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively 
Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds and of, of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own godly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through, Christ, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, ladies, tonight we are going to do verses 8 through 10. And if you look up here, I know we're a little different than what we normally are, but very quick review here. We know that in verse 1, this letter starts with, this is a letter from a believer to believers in verse 2, we talked about the assurance that the believer has, that though this is a letter about judgment, we also see in it God's mercy and how his deliverance is highlighted over and over again. Um, in verse 3, we talked about Jude's obedience in writing this letter. This wasn't what he initially wanted to write, but he did so because he is a servant a doulos of Christ, and he wrote this letter instead, which is why we have it today in a time where apostasy is much greater than in the time he originally wrote the letter. In verse 4, and here's what I really want to point out tonight, in verse 4, we saw the first descriptions of apostasy and apostates. Now, all throughout the letter, we are going to see that Jude continues to do this. All throughout, he'll give us different characteristics, beginning, middle, and end, always keeping these things in front of us. Um, the apostasy that Jude warns us of, though, because remember, we know apostasy in general is just a denial of, a rebellion against, 
a forsaking of truth. It is when someone has heard the truth, been exposed to the truth, has had access to the truth, but they refuse it. That's apostasy. And apostasy is always dangerous. But Jude is talking about apostasy within the church. People who do this but stay within the visible church. Um, After this, for the past three weeks, we looked at each of the three examples that Jude gives us from an apostate group in history. We talked about the Israelites in the wilderness wanderings. We talked about the angels that sinned that we see in Genesis 6. And then last week, we studied out the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, all examples of apostate groups. And we definitely saw similarities between the groups, but also some differences. It's like Jude is trying to get us to see this topic from every angle possible. That's what he's doing. So tonight... We will be getting into some new material. So if we look at the verses we just talked about, and I showed you on the outline different areas where he is pointing out characteristics of apostasy, verses 4, tonight verse 8, verses 12 through 13, verses 16, 17, and 18. If I took out every bit of content from all those verses. This is what you're seeing in your chart here. This is all the characteristics of the apostates that he gives us, that they crept in unnoticed. They're ungodly. They pervert the grace of God, deny the Lord Jesus, rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. They're hidden reefs. They feast without fear waterless clouds, fruitless trees, spiritually dead, wild waves, wandering stars, grumblers, malcontents, people who follow their own desires, loud mouth boasters, they show favoritism for gain, scoffers, and followers of their own passions. So quite an exhaustive list here that Jude is giving us. Now, a few of these we've already gone over, um, so let's just review them very quickly before we get into some new ones tonight. Again, the first thing Jude tells us about apostates is they crept in unnoticed. They crept in where? Into the church, absolutely. Again, it'd be no surprise if we held up this list and we compared it to the world We would see this type of thing everywhere. But he's telling us this is going on in the church. They've crept into the church, and this is the most dangerous form of apostasy. Next, he tells us that they are ungodly. Now, that one word actually could be used to sum up every single one of these things. And it's funny, within Jude's letter, sometimes He goes into some very specific issues and characteristics. And in other places in the letter, he'll just sum everything up with one word, ungodly. So to think about what that word means, let's first look at what it means to be 
godly or godliness. Godliness means to conform to the laws and wishes of God. So to be ungodly means we're dealing with someone who is not conforming to God and what his word says. So can you see why it's so dangerous for someone ungodly to be in the church professing to be a follower of Christ or godly when by definition they are not conforming to God or to his word. So again, that is why we see the urgency in Jude's voice in writing this letter. Um, When this happens, horrible damage is done to the true church. The next thing he says is that they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. So again, another characteristic Jude mentions is that apostates live lives of license. There is now and there was an absence in their personal walk in life of moral (coughs) restraint. These are people without moral restraint. They abuse the liberty that they have in Christ. They view grace as a blank check to live however they want. And then you might hear excuses um, that sound something like, I'm free from the law. Don't be legalistic. I'm, I, um, I am a person of grace. I receive grace. Um, God loves me. Jesus loves me. He's not going to judge. He made me this way. He wants me to be me. I heard that one recently. Um, yes, he wants me to be happy. Our happiness is absolutely not his first priority. Our character is his priority. Um, But those are several things that Jude opened up with to show the kind of people that we're dealing with here. And remember, we talked about this at the beginning. These are people. These are people. We, We have to remember that. Sometimes we don't want to think that we ever have to say something to another person. But Jude Jude is calling for this here. Jude is calling for it. So, of course, all of these things is the exact opposite of what the Bible actually teaches us. If you look at Titus 2, 11 through 12, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So now, when we move into verse 8, we're going to see how Jude connects the three historical examples that we just mentioned, or that he just mentioned, into what was happening in the first century church. He's going to give us four new characteristics in which to identify apostates, And because we know there's nothing new under the sun, just as it was applicable in the first century, it is applicable for us today in recognizing apostasy and apostates. 
So let me read the three verses again that we're going to go through tonight. So beginning in verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand distinctively. Oh, there is a lot in these three verses. And if you go back to your original, where I had you maybe underline things or circle things, there was probably a lot of underlining and circling in these three verses. There's some strange things in these three verses. So we're going to take our time tonight and really dig out what, um, what the word is telling us. So first we see the words yet and also. Obviously, these prepositions are connecting the historic examples that Jude just gave us to the present day, to his present day and to our present day. Three examples we have. How are they like today? In like manner, this word is homeos. It means likewise, equally, and in the same way. So in a similar manner to the Exodus generation, in a like manner to the angels in Noah's generation, and the men in Lot's generation, these people today, the apostates, those who've crept into the church, continue to do the same thing we saw in those three examples. Even though their punishment has been laid out. Think, think about that. Apostates today have something none of those apostates had, the written word of God laying out what happens when things like that are practiced. So, Jude here, what he does is he's going to show us a practice of apostates that lead to three new characteristics by which they can be identified. So a practice and then three new characteristics. So the practice here that we see is it says relying on their dreams. Relying on their dreams. In Greek, this is a big one, in upneadzome. And it's from enupion, which means in and hypnos meaning sleep. But it is linked to the word and an idea of a vision or a relevatory dream. This is different from the Greek word onar, which just means a dream you dream while sleeping. This is so important to get the difference here. They're relying on dreams. What it's saying is they're relying on 
on revelatory visions that they believe God has given them. Whether they get them when they're asleep or awake, it doesn't matter. They believe they are receiving revelation from God. And they are relying on this. And not only relying on this, they even allow it to supersede Scripture. This is what is being laid out here. It categorically says that apostates are dreamers who rely on their visions. Now, of course, we know, can God speak to somebody in a dream? Absolutely, he can. Absolutely. There's scriptural evidence for that. But this is not what Jude is talking about because Jude is talking about apostasy. So he's not talking about real things from God. He's talking about revelations people believe they receive that supersedes scripture. So Jude has called believers to contend for the truth, yet these people rely on dreams. They claim God has spoken to them in a dream, a vision, a revelation, and what they received goes above scripture itself. So, ladies, this highlights the battle itself between the objective truth and reality of the Word of God and subjective vain imaginations, fantasies, delusions, and dreams of men. Now, the structure of this sentence is crucial if we look at how this is put together again in the Greek for two reasons. The Greek participle here, the inupneadzome, modifies the next three verses or the next three verbs. So we see relying on dreams modifies these next three verbs, which shows that these behaviors, they're all in present tense, and it shows the behaviors aren't one-time events. This is a mark of a lifestyle. So they rely on their dreams, and then because of that, they do these three other things. Defile the flesh, not meaning they sinned once. It means it's their lifestyle of defiling the flesh. It wasn't a one-time instance of rejecting authority. They live lifestyles of rejecting authority. Not a one-time thing speaking a blasphemous word. It is a lifestyle. This is what the structure here of this sentence is showing us. The second reason this is so important is it shows a linear connection (laughs) revealing that the relying on dreams results in these three other things. It's because they rely on dreams that they, again, do those three things, that they defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So very important to see the structure here of what's being said. 
Now, if we look at these three words, it's interesting. We could break these down, relying on their dreams. Um, they defile the flesh, which points out immorality. Rejecting authority shows insubordination. And blaspheming the glorious ones shows irreverence. So a lifestyle of violating moral laws especially in sexual matters, a defiance of authority, a refusal to obey orders, and a lack of respect for people and things that should be taken seriously. Man, there is a lot. There is a lot in there. Um, This is telling us a lot. It is exposing a lot about the lifestyles of these people and why they are there. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this verse, says this. They appeal to their dreams as a source of revelation. These apostates justified their immorality by appealing to dreams, which they believed functioned as divine approval for their behavior. They're led astray by relying on their dreams, thus mistakenly following subjective experience that they claim are from God, but that lead them to disobey God's written word. So subjective experience based on dream, a vision, versus following the written word of God. This is what's happening here dreams, if ever from God, will never contradict God's word. Never. Never. If it does, you know it's not from God. If you hear it that somebody else is saying and it doesn't line up with the word, it's not from God. Stop listening. If he gives you, if he gives you anything, it's his word. (laughs) And he's already given us his word. He's already given us his word. So, these people give their own dreams and imaginations equal and or superior authority to the word itself. They believe and teach personal revelation can supersede God's written revelation. And God is never going to give someone something new outside of his own word. And ladies, this happens all the time, all the time. This is what we need to know. This is what we need to look to. This is what we need to learn. This is what we need to have have in here. So when we hear anything else, we can know whether it is of God or something else. Um, this is where all Christian cults begin, all of them. It's fascinating to me that some cults are even called Christian, but they are. That just means a cult that claims to be a follower of Jesus or uses scripture. And this is another great book to have on your bookshelf. It goes through pretty much every cult and tells you exactly what they believe and um, combats it with scripture, why it's wrong. But any of the quote-unquote Christian cults, if you think of Jehovah Witness, if you think of Mormonism, 
If you think of Christian science, not Scientology, but Christian science, all of those began with a new revelation someone got that they put above Scripture, whether it's Joseph Smith or Mary Baker Eddy, I believe, new things, and then they build an entire religion around it. Um, Modern day example. I want to show you like historical things, but I also want to show you some modern day examples. And this this is just a big one. This is such a travesty. Um, Rob Bell was an American, or he is an American author, speaker, founder, and former pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church in Grandview, Michigan. He actually helped to found the church in 1999, and by 2005, it had a weekly attendance of over 10,000 people. In 2001, He was named number 10 in a list of the 50 most influential Christians in America by thechurchreport.com. In 2011, he wrote a book entitled Love Wins. Has anybody ever heard of that book, seen that book? Okay. Okay. In this book, and here's what I'm going to do here. Every one of my bullet points here is a summation from an article I read in the New Yorker called Hellraiser. And it is a, um, it was an interview with Rob Bell. And then also interviews that I watched with Rob Bell himself. So these, these are his words here, not making these things up. So he said, in writing Love Wins, he was dreaming of a world without hell. In search of a more lucid doctrine, he began in his church to de-emphasize hell. He began to embrace the social gospel, urging Christians to worry instead about eradicating various hells on earth. So let's take care of these things and get our mind off the real hell. This, This is what he started doing. And as soon as I'm reading this article, of course... John Lennon's song is just playing in my mind. And you all listen to these words, such horrible anti-biblical words. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. We could pick apart every single line in here. It's awful. Imagine there's no countries that isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion to. Um, On down, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join me and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Man, isn't this... Today's culture, absolutely written in the 60s and playing out today. Um, It just appears that Bell might be getting his theology more from something like this than actually the word that he 
professes, and that's the difference. John Lennon never professed to be a Christian, never. Bell does, yet he's saying the same thing. That should, that should catch our attention there. Um, continuing in the bullet points here. He said, if love wins leads some readers to conclude in exasperation that nobody really knows what will happen in the afterlife, Bell would consider that a victory. So it sounds like his ultimate goal is confusion. Um, he said, I skipped one. The Bible is full of contradictions and there's no way to resolve them. Absolutely untrue. Forced to choose, this one is critical, forced to choose between his personal Jesus and his perfect Bible, he states that he chose Jesus. Did he choose Jesus? No, because Jesus is the word. <laughs> Jesus is the word. Yes, he is making his own Jesus, his personal Jesus, making Jesus someone he wants him to be not the real Jesus of the Bible. With the success of love wins, here we get into a little lifestyle. With the success of love wins, Bell emerged as a kind of celebrity pastor. You all know how I feel about that word. <laughs> he made the cover of Time Magazine. He had a book tour, many speaking engagements, television interviews. He later moved to L.A. to pursue a television career. Bell often talks about that current time is a historic opportunity for the creation of a new kind of church, one geared toward young people who aren't inspired by the old evangelicalism. Nowadays, he often describes Love Wins as the strategic project designed to make Christianity more inviting to people who might reject it out of repugnance for the doctrine of hell. We don't get to do that and call ourselves Christians. That, that's not optional. When we take the name of the Lord, <laughs> we take him as he really is, as revealed by his word, and we take his word. We don't get to change something that we don't like. We don't get to cherry pick. Oh, I'll believe this, but I'm not going to believe this. That, that is not optional. And here we have someone called one of the most influential pastors espousing things like this and has led many people astray in this, many people. In an interview from 2003 with Andrew Wilson, um, when he was asked about the issue of homosexuality, this was his response. I think it's time to acknowledge that we have brothers and sisters who are gay. This is part of life in a modern world. This is how it is. A lot of people want nothing to do with God because they can't see beyond that particular issue. I'm for monogamy, fidelity, and commitment, and we should confirm that gay or straight. Okay, is it true that people might reject God because of God's views 
of that, of homosexuality. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is their, that is their choice. They, they can accept it or they can refuse it. Do we get to change it because people are refusing it? Absolutely not. Of course. This is the kind of thing that's happening today. And this is a book in Christian bookstores. We have got to be careful. We have got to be discerning. Just because something is called Christian does not mean it lines up with the Bible. Um, Last couple of things there. Another book he wrote, What We Talk About When We Talk About God. It explores the nature of God for those who can't buy traditional conceptions but long for deeper spiritual connections. Isn't it funny that usually when the word spiritual is used, it's not really spiritual? (laughs) It's something totally different. Um, In 2015, he started a podcast called Robcast. To me, that just screams arrogance. Um, And this is the interviewer's summary at the end. He says, as Americans increasingly leave religion behind, and that is true, many former evangelicals have found comfort in Bell's no-strings-attached spiritual instructions. Absolutely. Are there strings attached when you become a Christian? Absolutely. There, there's, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of expectations. There's a lot of obligations. This is why God says, don't take my name in vain. It's a commandment. Don't, don't say you have become a Christian and you're not doing what I tell you to do. That's what that commandment is saying to us. Don't do that in vain. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5 says this. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and that sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Those are some of the strings we were just talking about there, that whole list. (laughs) But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Pretty, pretty clear. Obviously, again, this isn't today instant death for a prophet who prophesies incorrectly. But is death the result, the end result for a person who practices apostasy? 
A- absolutely. Absolutely. Might not be today, but that is coming unless they turn, unless they repent, unless they truly um, bow to Jesus as Lord. So, this whole practice of relying on dreams that we talked about leads to three new characteristics that we're going to talk about from the list tonight. So, the first is to defile the flesh. This word um, defile is mieno, and it means to dye with another color, to stain, pollute, solely contaminate with sin. And the word flesh here is sorex, which means the human body. Sometimes um, in scripture, we have that word flesh used for our sin nature, but here it's talking about our actual body. So these people defile their very bodies with sin by their behavior. So the lives of apostates are tainted, stained, and polluted with sin. Sin for an apostate, remember, we've talked about this multiple times. It's not an action because we know true believers sin as well. We do. do. The difference is it's not our lifestyle. We, We should react very differently to sin. Their lives reflect works of the flesh rather than works of the spirit. And in practicing these works of the flesh, they defile their bodies, which as a believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So this contrast of works of the flesh versus works of the spirit, look at a few scriptures here. In Galatians 5, 19 through 23, I'm going to read them, but really dig into these over the week. It says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. So these are works of the flesh. We know we as true believers are to crucify the flesh and exhibit the fruit of the spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So those two things in contrast. Then 1 Thessalonians 3, 4 through 5 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So all three of the historical examples that we went through over these past three weeks Um, showed individuals who defiled the flesh and polluted their own bodies in various ways. Very easy to see in the story of the angels and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah defiling the flesh. But if you remember, even in the story of the Israelites, when we got the summary of that from 1 Corinthians, 
Paul talked about that some of them practiced sexual immorality. So this was evident in all three of those historical examples. The second characteristic is rejection of authority. The King James Version words this as despising dominion. So this is the Greek atheteo. It means to do away with something that is established, to set it aside, disregard, or to slight it. And look what that word authority here means. Chris which means lordship. So there is a rejection of lordship. These people that reject uh, his lordship, this takes us all the way back to verse 4, where Jude gave us one of the first characteristics, which is denying the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His lordship isn't optional. Believers, true believers, cannot reject his lordship. That's what it's all about. This is a quote from Courtney Alexander of Grace at Work, and he says this, many people like the idea of being saved from their sins, especially the idea of avoiding endless punishment in hell. And if accepting Jesus as Savior will save them from that fate, then they are happy to accept Jesus as Savior. We can understand that. It makes a lot of sense. People should desire to be saved from their sin, including from the eternal consequences that God warns will come to those who remain in their disobedience to the gospel of Jesus. But many people who desire to be saved from the consequences of their sin are less enthusiastic about embracing Jesus as Lord. Acts 16.31 says this, and you might want to turn there and underline this in your Bible because this just really screamed out to me this week. And this is Paul in Acts. And it says, when a man cries out, what must I do to be saved? The apostle Paul answers him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. When he says, what must I do to be saved? Paul doesn't say, well, believe in the Savior. He says, believe in the Lord. Believe in the Lord. Jesus is not Savior or Lord. He is Savior and Lord. He's not one or the other, and you don't get to pick or choose between the two. A person either accepts both or they receive neither. Jesus and Lord. So God, we know, is a God of authority, the ultimate authority, of course, being himself. He establishes authority because it's his very nature. We see even an authority structure in the very triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we also know that God has set up his creation to operate under 
different authoritative structures as well. We have the family, we have society, we have church, we have government. All of these have an authoritative structure. And when there is a denial of ultimate authority, it trickles down into all other areas as well. In Romans 13, 1 through 7, Paul tells us we should be subject to the authorities over us for there's no authority except from God and those which exist are ordained by God. However, we see a rejection of authority everywhere. We see it in the home where a wife rejects the husband's authority and children reject the parent's authority. We see it in society where students reject the teacher's authority and citizens reject the authority of the police. We see it in church where members reject leadership's authority. We see it in the state where loyalists reject the government's authority. And we see it everywhere in individuals who reject all authority and put themselves up as rulers of their own life living by their own standards. So obviously this does not mean we have to agree with all authority. We never will. We won't have the same views. We won't have the same opinions. But the Bible helps us with that as well. It shows us what to do when we have an issue with authority and how to go about that in a biblical way. The point here is that God is the ultimate authority. He has put authoritative structures in his creation, which we are supposed to respect and not reject. So this rejection of authority um, or those who are in authority is an act of subordination or rebellion. Rebellion is the denial of God's authority and the rejection of his rule. And really the theme of the entire universe could be summed up with God's authority and Satan's rebellion. God's nature is authoritative. Satan's nature is to rebel. And in 1 Samuel 15, 23, this is why it tells us that rebellion is as of the sin of witchcraft. Rebellion is no small thing, definitely nothing to joke about, nothing to accept in our children. Rebellion is serious, absolutely serious. Um, And these people, apostates, it's saying, live a life of rebellion against authority. And again, we saw that in all three historical examples. In the Israelites, they rebelled against their God-given leader, Moses. God gave them a good leader and they rebelled. In the angels that sinned, they rebelled against God himself. In the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, they rebelled, if you remember, Lot had some type of governmental position in that city. So they were rebelling in that way. We see rebellion, a rejection of authority in all three examples again. 
And then finally, the third characteristic here is that they blaspheme the glorious ones. The King James has this as they rail at the glorious ones. So blasphemeo is the Greek, and it means to speak evil of, to revile, to rail against, criticize, attack, or insult. So apostates are not only immoral and insubordinate, but they are also irreverent. This is what this is pointing out. Now, in general, when we look at this word blasphemeo, it can describe um, any irreverent actions. They lack respect that they should have and that they should show. Of course, this can be a lack of respect for God himself, for his word, for his ways, for his plan, for his rules, anything. And we see that as well in all three of the historical examples. They all reviled, they all criticized, were irreverent in some way. Again, with the Israelites, if you remember, we saw that where it said they witnessed idolatry, but then they just went and um, I think the word was played. Do you remember that? They just did not take sin seriously. In the angels that sinned, they rejected the very position God gave them. They reviled against that. They didn't want their position. They wanted to do something different. They wanted another position that was not theirs. And then the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, they rejected God's plan for sexuality. Here's his plan. They reviled it. They wanted something different. So again, this comes out in all the historical examples as well. So even though... This can be a general irreverence towards God and his word and his plan. Jude gets very specific here in his next words that we need to see. It says, they blaspheme the glorious ones. This word in Greek is doxa. It means things belonging to God or Christ, an opinion, a judgment, a view, a good opinion, which should result in praise. That's why we get our word doxology from this root. Now, if we look at other translations, and you might um, open your Bibles to see what yours says. I have some well-known, trusted translations here. I'm using the ESV, and it says they blaspheme the glorious ones. In the NIV, the word says heap abuse on celestial beings. The New Living Translation, they scoff at supernatural beings. The King James, they speak evil of dignities. And the New American Standard, they speak abusively of angelic majesties. So it seems at first very strange (laughs) to take this They blaspheme doxa, but then it's being translated as angelic beings. 
And the reason for this, and ladies, this is why we need the whole counsel of God. This is why we use scripture to interpret and understand other scripture. We can't take things just totally by themselves without gleaning information from other places. Now, if you remember, the letter of 2 Peter is almost identical to Jude. They use the same words, sometimes the exact same phrases. They are talking about the same topics, but sometimes there's just a little change in each that really highlights something and helps us to understand what is being said in the other letter. So in 2 Peter 2, 9 through 12, it says this. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will be destroyed in their destruction. So Peter gives us a little more insight here by adding apostates blaspheme angels when even angels who are greater in might and power than people Do not blaspheme other angels. This is what this is saying. Apostates take a liberty that is not theirs. So in one instance, we see that they are rebelling against authority. And then at the same time, they are presuming to have an authority which has not been given to them. This is what's happening here. And to make this point even further that this is what he's talking about, he gives us this scenario starting in verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So what is going on here? Um, Again, it starts with a conjunction, but, which is, of course, connecting two ideas by contrasting them. So we see these people that are being mentioned in verse 8, and all the people represented in these three historical examples are now going to be contrasted by what Michael the archangel does. That's what it's saying. This is what all these people have done. This is what Michael does. This is every way that these people have gotten it wrong. And here's the right way. This is, in your outline, you can see this is the first antitype of apostasy that Jude gives us. He's going to give us another one later in Enoch. But this first one is with the archangel Michael. 
So in a letter that is absolutely full of apostasy and apostates and things not to do in all the ways um, things can go wrong, it's like, okay, here's a here's somebody who did something right here. So this is what we're looking at here in this scenario, in this example. So Michael, Michael, it's interesting. Michael's mentioned five places in scripture altogether. I have them there for you and you can look into them this week. But if you look into all five and you put them together, you'll see Michael is portrayed as a powerful, warring angel who fights against Satan and other fallen angels. So Michael is no joke. <laughs> and, and this is what this is what's being given as an antitype of apostasy here. Now, an interesting connection, if you want to work through this this week, um, in Scripture, even though we are told that angels are innumerable, means there's more angels than we can even count, we are only given the specific names of three. Michael mentioned five times. Gabriel mentioned four times. And again, if you put all the listings with him, you see he's more of a messenger angel. And then we have Lucifer mentioned many times by many different names. I can't even put them all in there for you, but I do have a beginning. Um, He's called Satan. He's called the devil. Of course, many other things. The word Lucifer, which is very interesting, in most translations of the Bible, you won't find that at all. It is only mentioned one time in Isaiah in the King James Version and the New King James Version. That's it. Other Bibles don't even call him Lucifer. So why that became such a common name for him, I really don't know. But other translations um, in Isaiah call him the morning star, day star, things like that. But interesting to just kind of follow that through thread through scripture of the angels for which we're given names. But here we're looking at Michael because he's being cited as a positive example um, in contrast to all the negative things that we've seen so far. So Michael, when contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. So where is this in the Bible? This isn't in the Bible, which is interesting because usually we do have some place to go to, to again, confirm scripture. This, um, this story actually comes from another ancient writing called the Assumption of Moses. Now, the Assumption of Moses is an apocryphal writing, um, the same as the book of Enoch, which is probably the one people are most familiar with, the book of Jubilees, and the book of Joshua. Now, these are not in any way canonized scripture. In fact, the word apocryphal means a story or statement of doubtful authenticity, although widely circulated to be true. <laughs> so that's what, that's what these books are. What makes this interesting is these would be books 
that the inspired writers would have probably been familiar with. So people were reading these things. Is it okay to read other books? Of course it is. Can we learn things from other books? Of course we can. We just can never put them in line with Scripture itself. And if ever there's something that denies or contradicts Scripture, then we need to stop reading it. But I've, I've got in here, and I'm not going to read all these because I'm going to try to finish up so that we can have questions. But read through those here. It gives you a brief explanation of each of these books. The only one I'm going to talk about is The Assumption of Moses, this is sometimes referred to as the Testament of Moses. Um, it is a first century Jewish apocryphal work, which supposedly relates prophecies told by Joshua to Moses. Um, it's in this work that this account is detailed. But again, it's not canonized. And unlike the Bible, listen carefully, this book is poorly preserved, and we have one manuscript. (laughs) This is is one of the ways the Bible is proven to be true, how many original manuscripts we have of the word that actually match up. For the assumption of Moses, there's one. There's one. And a large part of it is missing. Now, I don't know how in the world I typed in 500 A.D. there because that is totally incorrect. So please cross that out because we know it's first century. It is supposedly sometime between 200 B.C. and 100 A.D. So even in that, you can see nobody's even for sure when it was written, and that's a long span of time there. So in this work, we see the account where Satan and Michael fight over the body of Moses once Moses dies. Now, details from that work just say a few things. It says Satan tries to take the body, saying he has a rightful claim to Moses because Moses had killed an Egyptian. So he's saying, I should be able to get that body. In his role as the accuser of the brethren, he was pronouncing Moses' guilt which would deny him an honorable burial. And Michael is sent to defend and claim the body. And in this, again, Satan is trying to lay claim to the corpse to use it for his kingdom. Now, that's in the assumption of Moses. Again, don't know what in that could possibly be true. Interesting to look at, but I wouldn't give it too much, um, too much weight. Everything that we need is given to us in Scripture. Why is this something that's mentioned only one time? I, I really don't know. All I can say is this one of the, is one of those things where we have to say we believe it. We believe that this happened because it's recorded. It is written in the canon of Scripture. So what do we know about this? Really what we can get is from Deuteronomy 34, 5 and 6. This is where it's talking about the death of Moses. And it says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, 
died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he, meaning the Lord, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. How interesting. So Moses dies and the Lord buries him in secret. So this is what we know from the Old Testament and from Jude we do learn at some point there was a dispute about this body between Michael and Satan. So why would Satan want the body? Well, again, it doesn't tell us, but a couple ideas have been put forth. One is that he probably wanted the body of Moses because Moses was so revered that he might be able to deceive people into worshiping Moses or having his grave as some holy site, something like that. And um, the second idea is that Satan wanted that body because the Lord had plans for it later. And we do see, and you know my belief there, I do believe one of the witnesses that comes back, I actually believe that it is most likely Moses. I can't say that for sure. But... I don't give that really much validity because Satan, um, Satan would not know that at this time because obviously he doesn't know the future. So when this happened, he would not have known that. But why does he want the body? We don't know. We just know there was an argument over it. And in this, why would Jude even mention this? Why would he bring it up? is because he's using this strange thing as an example of how someone should approach and address angelic beings. Everyone else seemed to get it wrong, and Michael got it right. And this is how he got it right. It says, he, Michael, did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So Michael, the most powerful of all angels, who possesses a more perfect knowledge than humans, dared not bring a railing accusation against Satan. He didn't presume to have an authority to do so, and he just left it in the hands of the Lord. Yet we see apostates do what even angels fear to do. And this is why he is bringing this out. Verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand distinctively. So again, this is a very, um, a very strangely worded phrase. It's like it's saying, these people blaspheme what they don't understand and are destroyed by what they do understand. So doesn't make a whole lot of sense at first read, 
So we have to dig into the original language here. So it says these people, of course, this is the pronoun referring to the people that have already been mentioned, the ones he's talking about. This is the apostates. They blaspheme. We already went through that word. They speak evil of or criticize or insult. All that they do not. This is a very strong word here, ooh, which means an absolute negative. They absolutely do not understand. Absolutely do not understand. And this word understand is ido, which means close attention, to be skilled, a deeper, intimate knowledge. And this one is so important, discernment. Discernment. So here we see apostates blaspheming or speaking against something they really don't understand. They don't have true knowledge. They don't have discernment in this area. There's two words for understand. That ido, which we first saw. And the second is episto, which means a superficial knowledge. Likened to the instinct of an animal. They might know to do something. An animal can know to do something but it has no faculty to understand why it's doing what it's doing. That's what that word understand is. So it says they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand distinctively. So here, here's why that is so important. It's saying these people don't have true understanding of or discernment of these things, they do understand distinctively, meaning their understanding is superficial, likened to the instinct of an animal, and basing decisions based on senses. So this is what this is describing there. So they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand distinctively. So we see the two different words of understanding there. And then this word, unreasoning, this one absolutely blew my mind. I'll take advantage of the whiteboard since we actually have it. This word, unreasoning, is alogos. Wow. If you break that down, the prefix a would mean without. What do we know the word logos is? Oh, my, the word. So to be unreasoning means to be without the word. Oh, you all, no wonder the world is in the mess it's in. (laughs) People can't even reason without this. It's in the very 
definition of the word. So they, like unreasoning animals, understand distinctively. And again, that word distinctively means actually instinctively. I wish that word was in there. It would be easier. (laughs) Instinctively, by nature or guidance by aid of the bodily senses. And man, if that doesn't describe an apostate, making decisions based on their bodily senses. So we need to be people who move past superficial understanding of difficult things into a deeper understanding of the way of God and how he has set things up, we have got to be discerning. This letter is a call for discernment in the church because things have been allowed in and allowed to stay in that shouldn't be there. And this is the believer's call to action. Finishing 2 Peter 2 through 12, the verses we read earlier, he says this, but these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. And then we know we have another warning in Hosea where it says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Is knowledge important? Absolutely. Y'all, even knowledge gets a bad rap these days. Yeah, even knowledge. We should be women of knowledge. And the thing we should be most knowledgeable of is the word before all else. So if we're to take these three verses and sum it up in some lessons, and I know this week was a little different. I didn't really put applications all throughout. There's really just kind of one for you to think about as you go through the Word um, this week and dig into some of these connections. So if we wanted to take out some things, we need to realize instead of relying on dreams— A true believer believes scripture is the true and final authority on all things. Not just some things, all things. True and final authority. Instead of defiling the flesh, a true believer leads a life of moral purity. Instead of rejecting God's authority... A true believer submits to the authority of God and other authority structures that have been put into place. And instead of blaspheming the glorious ones, a true believer leaves in the hands of God that which they have no authority over. So think through these things this week and think through, do you see things like this happening today? How do you see it? Where does it happen? 
what are some modern day examples of this? And I think that will further help you to understand when you think through some of these things, what should we be doing about it? So with that, I'm going to pray and then we'll have some time for questions. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this letter. God, we come to you and ask you again to teach us everything you have for us in this letter. God, there, there are some tough things here. There are some things that might be rocking what we believe to be true. So, Lord, I just ask that you help us with these things. Lord, we want to be women of knowledge and understanding. We want to be women of true understanding, deep understanding, and women of discernment. So, God, I pray that each and every time we, as your children, read your word, we ask that the Holy Spirit reveal your word to us, aid us in our understanding, and help us in application. We thank you for that, Lord. We know without that, God, without the help of the Holy Spirit, God, without Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we would be in this position. We would be people who were like, unreasoning animals. God, thank you that we are not there. Thank you. Thank you that you saved us, that you chose us, Lord, that you call us yours and we can call you our Lord and Savior. What a privilege and honor that is. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.